Welcome to TongueCast. Uh, so, this month's TongueCast guest is Bobby Chu. Well, it was a talk that actually Bobby interviewed me. So, you were the guest actually. I was actually the、ah. guest on Bobby's、uh, Chu stream. And you were saying it's, it's really amazing that, that, that your interview was amazing. I don't know. Yeah. I'll leave it for all of you to judge. We'll talk about the graphic novel, Schoolism, the upcoming Lightbox Expo. Uh, as well as the Korea exhibition and answer some QA from a live internet audience.、Oh. So check it out. Here's my conversation with Bobby. I was going to, you know, why don't we just talk about your book a little bit? This is the third、uh, chapter of the trilogy, right? Is it a trilogy? Is it going to go beyond this in the graphic novels? As far, you know, we, a trilogy. That's what we,、uh, yeah, it's a trilogy. This is the end of the. This part of the story. I think the Dam Keeper world exists far beyond this, but this story that we're telling, this is the end of it. And so,、um, for those out there that might not be as familiar with the Dam Keeper、uh, story, what's your pitch like? You know, when you, I'm sure you have a million meetings, and <laughs> what do you usually、yeah. pitch them? You know, this really is a story of this unsung hero pig. Who grew up in this little mountain valley where, at one end of the valley,、uh, instead of holding back water, this dam holds back this dark fog. And when we were making the short,、um, one of the questions that we had, two questions we had actually, was、uh, in the short, everyone asked, What happened to dad? Like, there's a photo of him, but why is Pig all by himself this kid who has this immense responsibility? And the other is, like, What's out there in the world? Underneath that dark fog on the other side of the dam. So, our, our film was really、uh, not film, our story in the graphic novel was really to explore those two ideas like what happened to dad and what's out there、uh, in the world underneath the fog. Ah, very cool. And origin story of how this epic tale came to be. You know, the. All of our projects at Tonko House sort of start with a really, you know, our storytellers, the way that we approach stories to always seek out something that we're dealing with as people, because we feel like the way to reach a broader audience is actually by going deeper within to find issues that we face as humans, as people. Yeah.、Um, so this story was no different. When we started Tonko House, we had made the Dam Keeper short. And the last thing we wanted to do is actually go back to the one world that we created. You know, we were excited. Hey, let's go make other things. Let's go try to make something bigger、um, or different. And where we started is actually taking a page right out of Pixar's book. We had both worked there for a long time, about a, over a decade each. And, and one of the things that we love about Pixar is that the best stories, you know, they have a lot of stories they've told, but the stories that we love the most. It was always coming from a place that the storyteller had a direct tie to the issue or the, the problem that the main characters are facing. So, you know, Andrew Stanton in Finding Nemo is telling a story about, you know, asking himself, can I hold on to my children forever? And so we took a page out of that book and we started talking about who we are as people, Dice and I sitting down with a bottle of wine in a closed room, like, Therapy session. You know, we since then we've co- coined it Tonko House Therapy, where we just sit in a room and kind of talk about where we come from and things, our insecurities, things we haven't shared with people.、Um, and out of that came a little bit of a、uh, story that's not really mine to tell, a story that Dice had about growing up 
um, and his relationship with his family, his father, um, that tied us back to this character Pig um, and the world of the Dam Keeper. And we just felt, even though we had written this character for the short, it was at that moment that, you know, at least I realized like, oh my gosh, Pig is totally you, Dice. And, um, and since then, I think we both relate to Pig in many ways, but, um, but that's really what brought us back to this world is the story. I relate to Pig. Yeah. 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 You know, I think that's one of the cool things about the story was like, I think everybody kind of relates to Pig the most, I would say. Yeah. 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 We like to think of Pig as somebody who, you know, in our everyday, you know, it's like people who manage a city and manage, you know, people who come in and take the trash out every day and, it's like, you know, when they're not doing their job, everyone pays attention, but when they're doing the job, they're kind of invisible. You know, we think of Pig that way, of someone who's just day in, day out as a hero, but no one's really recognizing or seeing it. So, you know, one of the first things we started when when we started Tonko House, our studio, so we're gonna be actually, Tonko House will be five years old. Insane. Um, so we're really excited to be celebrating that. And, you know, I think you always hope you'll be here at five years, but you never know when you start something. But the first project that we ever actually did at Tonko House was with you, Bobby, um, doing a schoolism class. And uh, part of that class was really to just share what we had learned over, you know, the combined of a, a few decades of experience working in the industry, sort of sharing all of our painting secrets or design and painting and storytelling, how these are all things that are intertwined with each other. And, uh, you know, it was, there was a great opportunity to work with you. And, um, and so we created this class, but as part of that class also, you know, of course we kept painting. And one of the things that we thought would be fun is to record um, one of the paintings that we were doing for graphic novel book three. Um, so that's what we shared as a bonus class actually an added course um, is to share a step-by-step walkthrough of both the design and painting of um, one page out of the book. Yeah, that's fantastic because, uh, you know, when you're doing classes, and I do classes as well, um, when you're doing classes, a lot of times it's not the same as when you're working on something for work, right? When you're making an actual graphic novel, things like that, you'll shave away little boring parts, little sketches that might not have made it to the end. But as people are watching this video, they're actually seeing, uh, you know, the, the sketches before the final painting as well. And hearing your thoughts through that kind of stuff, that's where the gold is. That's where like, oh, cool. yeah. Dice and I have been drawing and painting for a long time. You know, I know you do, Bobby, and uh, it's, it'll always be a part of who we are, even as we kind of evolve into different roles and take on different responsibilities within the studio or within the industry. Um, and it's something that you, you always work on. It's not like, oh, cool, I figured out how to draw and paint and I'm done. It's like a continual sort of exercise. But I feel like what we are always excited to share is what we're also learning about storytelling and the process because I feel like now a lot more time is spent on the cons coming up with concepts and thinking through things. The drawing and painting is almost the exciting, fun part that we get to do at the end once we've figured out something we're saying. Um, so more and more, I think we're wanting to share a little bit of that process because I feel like that's always been a mystery to me. And, um, and I'm sure it's a mystery to a lot of people that we're also on this constant pursuit to figure out as well. So it's just fun to share. 
what we have seen, you know, and what we're applying, not necessarily what's right, but at least what we what we've experienced so far. Well, also the coolest thing for me as a business owner is that you're still doing a lot of paintings and drawings and you guys are business owners. Mm -hmm. Is that still the case now? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I just, you know, one of our projects, one of our directors and showrunners, Chris Sasaki is working on something and him and I went away uh, for a week and I just spent a week just drawing and painting with that guy while he was writing. And, you know, it's fun. I still, I still think that that's my, you know, it's not something that I just do for business. It's something for me that I just always want to keep doing. I, I don't think no matter what I do, I'll, I'll still, even if I was, you know, we started a restaurant or did other things, I'd still be drawing and painting because that's something that I do for myself and um, for my own sanity and, and kind of self-expression. So yeah, I, I think it, it, you know, yeah, less, definitely less. Um, time is spent less drawing and painting, but um, you know, I just talked to Dice the other day. He's in Japan. He spent the morning, they woke up early and they did a figured painting session, you know? So, and you could see, you know, it's it's not any easier, you know? It's like seeing the look on Dice's face. He was tired because he woke up early, but also sort of invigorated, but also it's always a challenge, you know? These things, looking at things, observing, observational painting, drawing and painting will never be easy. Yeah, I usually do my drawings now when I'm in meetings or like early morning. Yeah. For now, anyways, with all this Lightbox stuff, it's like just been insane. But also, you guys are going to be at Lightbox. Yes, definitely. Um, definitely. And then hopefully, uh, I know you guys are still figuring out what you're going to be talking about, but um, you know what? <laughs> There's been a flood of questions coming in. Can yeah. Can we go to some of these right now? Yeah, absolutely. I hope you don't mind. A lot of them are obviously they're going to be visual development and painting kind of questions as well of course okay so anonymous asks how can i how can i learn and study from a painting i've done master studies but once i remove the reference it's like i absorbed nothing <laughs> which i'm sure a lot of people can relate to right yeah yeah it's a good question i think like uh master paintings are amazing because they are a solution to a problem that's, you know, a problem, I think the problem is the same problem that many people will face, but the solution is kind of laid out in front of you. So I always feel like master painting alone is not going to be enough to learn. I actually think it's going out into the world, painting from life, and then doing a master study. In other words, like finding a solution to a question you don't have, an, you, you don't have yeah, it's probably just an exercise, but I feel like going out, struggling, getting frustrated, and then going to a master painting with questions, I think is the key for me of the balance between doing master paintings as well as uh, studying from life. Because I feel like, you know, when you're out on your own, you run into problems that you don't know how to solve. And what's great is the masters have more than likely encountered the same problem and found a way to solve it. Um, so that's where I feel like there's an efficiency to um, going out and living life and trying to figure it out on your own, struggling, getting really mad and frustrated, which I think we've all been there, but then going to the masters and seeing that they've actually solved it and then some. Um, you know, I still do master copies here and there. I still pay attention to what they are, but I feel like more and more it becomes more and more specific and my questions become deeper. And uh, at least that's, I don't know, what do you think, Bobby? I, that's kind of my approach. I, I hear it. I hear it. Yeah. Like, uh, you have a maybe you do a study and then you go outside you see 
where it's kind of like the same situation and then the light bulb goes off or maybe yeah. it's the the other way around you're you're trying to paint and you're struggling it's a forest there's too many things there's too many trees and and then you see you know some sort of painting like maybe nathan falks for example he does these awesome outdoor paintings super quick everything's simplified and you're like oh that's that's what that meant for him that's what he's uh representing right one thing that relates to my own life is looking at doing uh, studies of anatomy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but you, you study all these muscles and then you go into life drawing class and you're this total disconnection, <laughs> right? And you're like, where's all the ripping muscles? I just yeah. spent all this time uh, copying Jim Lee drawings, maybe. I don't know. And it's like, <laughs> that's not that's not what I was drawing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just finding that connection, right? And, uh, the other thing that you touched on was like, there's already answers to all yeah. these questions. And the cool thing is, it's like, uh, you know, there's so many different answers to the same question. Yeah. 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 It's so true. And I, I think a lot of times there is something deceiving about how someone has solved something because you're only seeing the end result. It's like, only seeing the cake at the end and not understanding that all the ingredients, where they're from, how those things are made are also part of the final product. Um, so when you're looking just at the, that final piece, um, it can be deceiving and frustrating in its own way, um, even if you're trying to learn from it, even if you go and like, you know what, I'm gonna copy this thing, I'm gonna, but there's so many things as far as um, understanding also the process, studying the process and not just the final product of some of these master artists is also something I've found valuable. Well, that's one of the best things about uh, like sketchbooks. And when you mm-hmm. actually buy a sketchbook, it's, it doesn't have the candy coating, the, the, the polish right. anymore. And, and then you can start to understand their thinking a lot more, right? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's why some artists used to destroy like things like that. Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, why don't we go on to the next question? Next question is from Anonymous. Uh, when driving, when diving into visual development, what is the foremost thing anyone should focus on? Uh, you know, my answer to that, it's not so simple, but I, I'll try to be kind of clear in, in my process now. I think this is something that's evolved for me over time. You know, in the beginning of my career, I would look a lot at things like if I had to create a visual development piece, I would think a lot about the the person who wrote like a script, the director, what they want. So I'd look at externally, what do other people want? And I feel like now for, you know, having a little more experience under my belt and, and going through this a few, few more times, uh, it's actually flipped quite a bit where I'll read something and the first thing I really should try to seek out is how do I connect with this material? Mm. Um, my connection to this, uh, what do I think? What's my opinion? Uh, you know, if it's a scene that's like supposed to be scary, the first thing I think about is, well, what's scary to me? Like in relation to all the elements are here that are here talked about in a script or, you know, in a description, what is it that I can pull out that is really terrifying for me? So, you know, we could be in the middle of a grocery store and you could be like, okay, it's gotta be scary. Well, okay, I'm using the fluorescent lights. 
camera angle is going to be critical. You know what's really scary to me is when you see all that meat in the back of the butcher at the grocery you know, store. And so is there something there? There's also something really creepy about you know, when you now when I go to the grocery store, they have those lights that flick on according to motion inside the freezer section. But if you're there, the first person and those lights start turning on, but nothing's there like that creeps me out, you know, and it's like things like that, that I just it's not like direct things, but the feeling of it is what I'm trying to I'm trying, you know, just like an animator, when an animator's kind of animating a scene, they put a mirror up and they'll act out a sequence. To me, it's the same thing for a visual development artist, where if you're creating a scene, a moment, You've got to feel it. You've got to know what it smells like, what it feels like, how, you know, what's the, what does your skin feel like in that space? What's happening? What's the atmosphere? You have to live it to me before you can really start to put it down on paper and abstract it. Because to me, making the development artwork is an abstraction of that feeling, but you cannot lose that core feeling. So, you know, what's funny. It's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, when we start art, it's all about feeling. Then we learn all this technical stuff that takes yeah. the feeling away sometimes for a lot of us. And then in the end, we're trying to f almost forget about the technical stuff and just kind of go with the feeling again. Totally. Now, totally do you think it's like, uh, do you think there's steps to this though? Like, uh, f I definitely remember when I first started to go, okay, yeah, it's going to be more about trying to figure out the the artists the director the art director's uh vision and i'm trying to almost like translate his or her words to yeah. figure out what that meaning truly is right and then later you you um get into the whole entire thing of like okay how can i contribute my own experiences to the honesty of this concept of this video or of this movie, um, I just wonder. I don't. I have yeah. no idea I, what the answer is. You know. Yeah, but, for me, I have like four basic steps. Yeah. Okay. Um, those basic steps are basically when I get an assignment, it's read, write, look, draw. So first thing I'll do is sit down and read the material and really dig in. You know, make notes on it and and like dissect every piece of whatever written material there is. Then I'll sit down and write. And that's really where this internal process happens. That's like stuff that I will never share with the world, but is for myself of like ideas, things that I, I connect with. Um, that's really where I, you know. Are those like full paragraphs? No, they're just everything from like little loose sketches to uh, little blurbs to fully written out things. Uh, it it kind of ranges. It's whatever that stream of consciousness of, again, trying to capture an overall feeling that, again, what this does for me is it sets up the prompt, it sets up the problem of what am I looking for? So then once I have an idea of like writing down all these things, I'll go and look. So that's like research, right? I'll go outside and look. I'll try not to do it all in Google. If I can experience, again, it's always about trying to connect back to a an experience that I can internalize and eventually put down on paper. So, you know, if it is about scary, something scary, I might actually go try to experience something that will remind me of what that is. Um, uh, you know, so it's looking is much more targeted. Like I don't start doing research until I really know what I'm looking for. 
And then after that, once I've collected all that, I put it all to the side and then I start to draw. And drawing really to me is communicating ideas. So when you say put it to the side, does that mean like first you're really, you're really observing it, you're staring at it for a good long time, you're looking at stuff, maybe you're sketching little notes to yourself and then putting it away as in not looking at the reference anymore and just going right. over what you learned. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and just kind of going from trusting, trusting my sort of uh, gut, which again, like I think over time, hopefully gets sharper and sharper, but I feel like more and more, I try not to be a slave to my reference. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and then just kind of create. And then I think like, really, I think as much as that's a linear process, I think of like visual development and concept development as a circular process in which um, you know, you start with this big loop, you have all sorts of ideas, you create something and then you realize, you know, with by yourself or with a team like uh, that works or doesn't work. And then you kind of tighten that loop, tighten that loop. But to me, like concept exploration is circular where, you know, you are, it does feel like sometimes, wait, did I already explore this? And it does feel like sometimes you're coming back to some place. Sometimes you're eliminating ideas. Sometimes you're building ideas. When you're creating concepts, do you do you kind of take it more like a like a sniper like you're really thinking about this these ideas so then you maybe come up with four or five really good ideas as opposed to 40 50 just yeah. like crank them out and like okay here's a pile of stuff what do right. you think everybody and let's create the story from here I mean, for me, like, I, I you know, if, if sniper is the right term, um, you know, shooting for four or five ideas, I always feel like that because I feel like, again, like, um, I feel like I'm in a position where it's like, I do have something I want to say. It might not be what the director wants to say. We might not be in alignment as to what is scary or what direction to take things. But then I feel like I want to help that director to understand that I'm not the right person for the job. So in that way, I feel like, I think entry level, when I came into the industry, my thing was like, I just want to be here. You know, for me, I started at Pixar. I'm like, I just want to be here. I need to prove to everyone that I belong here, but I don't know what the right solution is. So I will produce 40 to 50 different ideas. Mm. I think over time, I feel like uh, with where I've gone in my career and what I've done, I feel like what I, what I now have is like, I want to have something to say. So I work much more on like a finite amount of ideas that I feel good about, that I feel really like, yeah, this will be great. Like, if you like this idea, I've got so much more to offer. But if you're not into this idea, I think it's okay, but I may not be the right person for the job. Um, if you're working on something uh, you know, independent of, of DICE and then you guys come together to discuss ideas, do you bring all of your paintings, all of your sketches, or you just bring like a little handful, like the, the ones that you really want to talk about? I bring the ones, yeah. Eventually I'll show him everything just to kind of let him know, like, no, 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 I put a lot of work into this. Uh, or, you know, just because it's fun to share. But when we first talk about things and I'm, you know, we're collaborating on something, I like to kind of bring the ones. Mm. Uh, but I feel like, again, it's about clear communication. A lot of different sketches that are kind of saying the same thing can be confusing. So I like to be clear about, uh, you know, this is my thinking, this is what I think you should do. And again, like as much as we're using artwork to communicate, I still see us as collaborating on the story. 
Um, we're not necessarily, you know, it's, it's all of this is like collaborating on the story and we're using artwork to be the mechanism to communicate with. Mm. So I don't like to kind of come at it with a bunch of different ideas so much as like, this is my sort of idea. And then we can talk about what works or doesn't work. And then I might have other things in my back pocket that ah. like, oh yeah, if that's what you're thinking, then I also have this. Uh, I feel like if I empty that's like, a, that's like a Steve Jobs kind of move, you know, <laughs> and one last thing, here's a, you know, this other thing. <laughs> Holy cow. It's awesome. Yeah. Do you want to go on to the next question? Yeah. Okay, so Gina asks, from SF, by the way, she, oh, hey. she asks, uh, what is a good way to stand out in the oversaturated profession of character design? Yeah, that is a good question. I think, to me, right now, when I look at character design uh, and I look at character design portfolios, I think the great thing about the internet, the great thing about is the sharing of information everyone's looking at the best they're pulling from the best but i feel like a lot of especially uh artists who are you know put in places where or are in places where it's like the only connection to that sort of talent is through the internet then i feel like a lot of times um character designers especially ones that are looking to break into the business are all pulling from the same source material and in their mind in the back of their mind they still have the same mark for what a successful character designer is, which may not be ideas, but maybe people's work or certain pieces of work. And so you see across the industry right now, I feel like there is a jump in kind of the technical skill of mm. artists entering into the industry. But what I would say there's, is that there's a homogenization of the voices that a lot of people are saying very much the same thing. And I feel like if you really want to stand out, I feel like uh, it needs to be a combination of, yes, the, tech, the, the sound technical skill combined with a voice that is unique, something to say, some, an opinion about things that is unique to an individual. Um, because I feel like when you have a unique voice, you will use the technical skills to do something that is unique, that people have not seen before. I also don't believe in style for style's sake. In other words, like, a lot of times when a character designer, uh, especially someone looking to break in, is looking for a way to stand out, they will play with style. It's like, oh, nobody's mixed this like graphic look with this. And, and I feel like that to me is a mistake because a style, style is really like here and gone. And I also think that style comes, it's like handwriting. There's a certain way that I write that I can never do anything about mm. that is inherent to what I do. That to me is an artist's style, you can't do anything about it in a way. So I feel like it's everything around that. It's the voice. What do you have to say? Is it interesting? Are you an interesting person to listen to? Because if you're a technically sound artist, that's great. I think a lot of people could will hire you, but you will always be hired for your technical contribution. And I feel like a character designer in the end is a storyteller, is someone who is an actor, is provides a voice. And I feel like to stand out, I think the real question is, is do you think as an individual, your voice matters and your opinion matters and what you have to say matters? And I think if you if it does, then using all that technical understanding, you'll find a way to bring your voice to the forefront that will stand out and be different than everyone else's. Some of the biggest voices that I would notice anyways, I find always um, 
always is mixed with some other kind of interest that they have. You know, so for example, like I like creatures, for example, or I was interviewing somebody where her passion was uh, Egyptian stuff. You know, everything Egyptian, Egyptian civilizations, Egyptian culture. You know what I mean? And, and Ian McHugh. It's all about these beautiful junky ships that f you know fly through the air, and then these beautiful tree drawings. Yeah. Right. And it's just like you can tell that he really, if he saw a broken down boat, he would stare at it. Yeah. Things uh -huh. like that. Like you can start to really understand who they are as a person. Yeah. And it totally connects with what you're saying about stories and being honest and having that honesty come through in your ideas and your story. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think, you know, you could look at your art, my art, Dice's art, Kay's art, and you can see what people are interested in. Right. It's, it's kind of an open, transparent box in which you know, it's a kind of a light box uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, in which you can see not just technical ability, but actually interest, you know, what you're interested in as people and the kinds of things that you do. Like, you know, Bobby, I always think about your, your pieces are always so technically sound and you're, you know, even if you do creatures, you always have these really sweet moments, you know, it, it's kind of revealing to me of like how you see things. And a lot of times, you know, you might have a bunch of creatures, a little family of creatures, but these really interesting kind of fun play of, that's sort of dark, but always has a bit of heart in it. And I feel like, you know, things like that is an insight to who you are and, and is your voice in a way that I'm excited about. And I feel like that's where, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, when I was young, I was just copying a lot of what I liked. And I think that's an important part too, um, of all of our development, all of our growth. But I feel like the step beyond that to stand out is really developing your own voice in the end. Cool thing is that everybody's different and, and you know, if you're honest yeah. with your art, then it will come out as yeah. you, as an individual. And you have to take a risk, you know? Totally. You have to put yourself out there. It's not just like, well, this is me. I think, you know, you really have to take a risk and make some statements that everyone might not agree with. Now, I don't know if you've ever had any injuries, but Val... Val asks, do you have any tips for dealing with an injury on your dominant hand that hinders you from drawing? I feel mm. like I'm falling behind. Ouch, yeah. Um, you know, I've been really fortunate not to deal with any sort of work-related, you know, related to making artwork injury. Um, I know a lot of artists that have. Why do you think that is, that you never had to deal with it? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think I'm a late... I'm... <laughs> I'm an impatient artist, I'll say that. I will not slave over a piece. This has like been one of the things that's been really hard for me. For instance, because Dice is one of the artists that I'm closest with, I always compare myself to where he is. And uh, Dice is really amazing because he can do these really quick, loose paintings and they hold together really well. But he also can do these really involved, fully rendered pieces. Um, and he never wanes in terms of his like interest in making one or the other. For me, I really love when there's a new idea and I will make a piece. And I feel like my general threshold is like three to five hours is the most amount of time I could spend on a piece. Beyond that, I'm just noodling and making the piece worse and worse and worse. So for me, I think that's part of that impatience, part of that like ADD, I guess, you know, sort of like my inability to really focus in and, and stay a long-term 
on a piece uh, keeps me from also sitting at the computer or whatever, constantly like working. Inevitably, I will get up because I'm bored um, and walk around and give myself natural breaks throughout that process. So um, I think it's a lack of discipline in a way that has ah, gotten me. Whatever. To, You're so self-deprecating, honestly. <laughs> no, but I mean, in all truth, I feel like I don't sit for long. You know, it's like I can't like even when Chris and I were working for this week, uh, you know, I was just there to make artwork. But I found myself getting up like every so often to because I get bored and I'd be like, OK, well, how do I how do I kind of get myself you know, juiced up for this like piece. So there's a bit of that where I feel like there a lot of the artists that I know um, that have gotten injured are capable of like sitting at long lengths yeah. and just nonstop like drawing. And, you know, and it, because they're great at it, it's like there's like an equivalence between the more time spent at this drawing pad or whatever, the more I can make. Whereas for me, I feel like it's actually the time away from the computer that allows me to create. So I'm really here. I see drawing and painting as like an expression of like, almost like printing. But if I have something clear in my mind, I'd actually be able to make it. But if I don't, I'm just like swimming um, and making swill. And so it, it also seems like you use your kind of, um, you use your, see, your subconscious to kind of, think about problems as you're walking away from your computer you come back yeah. look at it with fresh eyes like it seems like that's something that you would use a lot as well it's part of my process yeah so i guess that's what keeps me from maybe from being injured i'm not sure but i also don't understand enough that i'm consciously avoiding being injured <laughs> well you're doing pretty good so keep at it yeah for me it was like i totally hear that val it's kind of like um your pencil it's going to a nub and you're refusing to take the time to sharpen it again like because yeah. you feel like you're going to fall behind that's what i kind of and that's what i kind of relate to her about as well because i've dealt with arm injuries for a very long time mm. and i felt like that every time i see like Dyson Robert at a rap party, Toy Story 3 or something like that. I'm like, oh, man, I need to get back to it. Anyhow, yeah. that was a good question. Um, yeah. Take lots of breaks. That's the biggest. Because <laughs> Robert doesn't even know exactly what he's doing to avoid these things, right? It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. How does one transition from practicing painting environments from reference to more imaginative ones, especially because you do so much studying from real life and yeah. then like this painting that we're seeing in front of us, it's totally imaginative. Right, that's a good question. I think that, uh, I'll, I'll equate it back to this for me. Like um, when I was in school and uh, figure drawing was a big focus. Um, all of the teachers were like, figure drawing, figure drawing, figure drawing. If you can draw a figure, you can draw anything. And a lot of artists that I went to school with were really amazing. Um, and they were really great at making beautiful final figure drawing pieces. And their focus was to create beautiful pieces, beautiful work. On the flip side, my goal was always to be able to draw a figure out of my head. Mm. And so the mechanisms that I used to learn figure drawing and how I thought about figure drawing was very different in a way than what 
I feel like they were focused on. So they might be looking specifically how a muscle wraps, you know, how like a deltoid wraps the shoulder blade and comes across and like how it inserts into the arm and, you know, what that looks like in the final product and all of that. And for me, it was always like trying to think about like, okay, we have this like sort of wing that flaps over the arm. The arm is basically a cylinder that has a, this dimensional shape. If I can simplify how these objects sit in space, how an arm, how a hand, if I can start to think about these things as more basic shapes, then I think I can take this and start to draw out of my head. If I try to memorize every single muscle and everything, how it's supposed to look in the end, I don't think I'll ever get there. And so it's the same thing with lighting and painting. When I sit down and paint, you know, and I go outside to paint outdoors, I am not trying to make a beautiful painting. I feel like what I'm trying to do is take notes on what the light is doing. And I think that fundamentally is a different sort of approach to than if I were trying to be a gallery painter. So those paintings are really, for me, things to look back on as like, oh, what is, what is the temperature relationship between light and shadow on a afternoon, four o'clock in Los Angeles? What does it look like on a really smoggy day? What is it, oh, interesting that the light is doing this. And, you know, Nathan actually is great because Nathan did that series of paintings from his office at DreamWorks in which he studied the light every day at different times of day. And I think that's, to me, is what's fundamental is actually... What are you gaining in terms of your sort of armory of kind of tools that you have to be able to sit down at your desk? What are you thinking about? And that's, again, where I think, uh, you know, painting to solve a problem versus painting to make a painting um, are two different things. And studying light, my objective is always to study light and to, to come back with a way of simplifying how lighting works or atmosphere works so that when I'm sitting at my desk, I can really utilize these things as a tool set to, to tell a story. So long-winded answer, but I feel like that's my general approach. If you're just copying reference or you're just looking at masters, but you don't understand the problem that ultimately you're trying to solve, then yes, I think it'll be difficult to suddenly flip the switch and try to be at your desk making concept art. Jeez, that was a good answer. Oh, cool. Yeah really nicely put um next question is from storm engineer uh, storm engineer asks every time i want to paint i'm just unable to get started like i'm frozen it can take hours to break through any advice wow that's yeah so idea generation or what to paint you know yeah I think he's kind of skipping steps, or she's kind of skipping steps, right? Yeah, I think so, too. Trying to dive into the painting too quickly. Yeah, agreed. Sitting down to paint with no idea is going to be hard for anybody. But do you ever do any of that kind of stuff where it's like you don't have an idea and you start just slopping stuff down and looking at, like looking at clouds and trying to imagine what it could be? Sure. I think as an exercise, absolutely. Um, and but I don't think usually do that, though. I'm, think, I'm thinking you don't usually do that, right? I don't. I don't. Only because, like, I, you know, much like yourself, Bobby, I have a limited amount of time to draw and paint. So actually, you know, I've got, like, things stacked up that I'm like, I can't get to. So drawing and painting time for me is very precious. And, you know, yeah, I do like to kind of have ideas before I sit down and draw and paint. And a lot of that, again, is, I think, just being an artist is not about sitting at a table and just making art. 
I think being an artist is about having something to say, going out, living the, you know, I mean, you and Kay do so much traveling and I feel like there must be so much life experience and things that incorporate, you incorporate into your artwork, into your business. Um, I think it's that balance between kind of living life and being a part of something bigger and then bringing that back to the desk where you are creating artwork. So for me, I feel like if it's not going for you and you've been trying to make it and trying to make it and you're not, it's not happening, stop trying to force it. You know, it's like step away from the desk, go experience something. You know, as, as you're talking, I can't help but to think about that other person that asked that first question about how to stand out. She, she asked how to stand out as an artist, uh, or as a character designer, but just like as an artist in general, artists in general, nowadays, we're just trying to produce stuff, feed the social media monster and try to get some likes, right? We're trying to make pretty pictures. Yeah. I think one really good way from what you're saying to stand out as an artist is to think about your drawings as trying to solve problems, mm -hmm. solving questions, observing how do things react to this thing and why, as opposed to just trying to copy it and make, produce beautiful pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right on. Next question is from Anonymous who asks, I'm someone who is not very confident of their artwork. Is this something that you guys uh, have faced and uh, how did you overcome it? What do you think of your own art? I, uh, you're so self-deprecating. I wouldn't be surprised if you're just like, meh, maybe one day it'll look all right. Yeah, I mean, I think the confidence thing sort of goes away, right? I, I don't think like there's ever a moment where you're like, oh, I figured this out. Again, like if I think of it as a problem, it's a problem that has no solution. It's a problem that's ongoing and that you know you constantly work on. There's always something out there better, or it's not even that there's someone out there who's making it now. You're, you know, you can sit down and open a ton of books and be like, wow, like they spent their lifetime and dedicated their life to making this art, and this is incredible. And I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I have it in me to ever be this good or make a piece that speaks on this level. And it's that constant pursuit that I feel like you either love it or you hate it. And I think every day you come in, you feel invigorated, you feel excited, you feel terrified. I think those things are inherent to being an artist. You know, I think that's the part of like, if you're looking for someone to say that you should be confident, yeah, I think like be confident in the fact that this is something you love and that it's not easy and that it's a choice that you've made that you've dedicated yourself to and you know there is confidence in that i feel like that you know yeah there's a lot of other people i find confidence in talking with you or you know uh, other artists who are like hey um this is hard right and it's like yeah and it's like yeah okay but i'm in the like <laughs> everyone else is struggling too people who i admire are struggling too and i don't think there's ever i think that over time what you gain is uh more tools and you find ways of that certain problems do have solutions certain things you can do and all along that journey you can settle anywhere you want but i feel like um, the artists who i've come to really respect and admire are artists who are constantly in a state of both questioning themselves and pushing themselves and trying new things you know the other day i'm always inspired when we go to la we always try to go visit glenn Keane, and glenn is an artist who is to me like the peak of an art, art artist, you know, where 
I mean, he's at a place where if anybody had a reason to settle and be okay with a lifetime of contribution towards the world and towards our industry, it's like Glenn King, but he is one of the most hungry and sort of artists that are never settled with their own work and always pushing in himself. And I feel like, you know, that's something to aspire to. One of the first people that I've seen paint in VR or draw in VR. Totally. You know, like he's, he's doing it before all the young whippersnappers are. It's crazy. Yeah. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and that's what gives me confidence is like, oh, that feeling never goes away. You just have to keep pushing yourself. And again, you can compare yourself to all the other artists out there, but every other artist has a different journey. So, you know, it's better to just start to be confident in the fact that it's, there's, there's sort of a, an uneasiness about being where putting yourself out there to be judged, you know? Um, now, that, I'm, I'm kind of, I have the impression that your days and my days are very similar where it's just uh-huh. nothing but little sprints. Yeah. Right? All throughout yeah. the day. And when, just like an engine, when you run it hot, you gotta cool it down. How do you cool down? Yeah, I, I think, you know, prioritizing my life, like, uh, and I, I think my wife would hate that I talk about it this way, but you know, it is like making a piece of artwork. Life is like making a piece of artwork. There's sort of those stages where, you know, it is little sprints. You, okay, we've got to come up with an idea. Here it is. Okay, we've got to come up with them now. Here it is. Okay, here's the value. Here's, this, here's, you know, and you kind of like piece by piece, you're putting this together in the end, you have something beautiful. To balance that out, I also think I look at my outside life, like my, you know, my daughter, spending time with my daughter is the most inspiring. And I know, at least before I had a family, I was always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that, like, for me, it's not even about my daughter, but I feel like this other part of it, the balance of life, travel, seeing the world, reading about the world, watching film, looking at other artists, enjoying those things, being with my family, uh, you know, being with friends, I think it's an important aspect of it that uh, I want to do 110% at Tonko House and running a business. I want to do 110% at being an artist and I want to do 110% at being a father and a husband. And, you know, those are the things that I feel like I don't want to ever compromise any of those things. But one of the things is like, you know, for instance, I try really hard not to be on my phone when I'm with my family. You know, I have like, I try to draw clear lines around these things to protect them, but also because each one informs the other. Sure. Um, but decompression though, you know, like, um, you know, like is, hang out with your daughter all the time is it always relaxing you know like she's screaming right. Right. you just came back from a long day what's your guilty pleasure let's put it that way that's actually a question in the, yeah. in the thing here too the, the thing i love so this last weekend actually my family was in la i didn't have to go into work the partners had flown out to japan So I just had like a weekend just to myself, something I haven't had in a long time. I probably watched a good 20 to 30 hours of film. So I went to the film, watched that film yesterday, finally got to watch Toy Story 4, all my friends and colleagues got to make, uh, went and watched a couple series on Netflix, watched a couple films that had been screeners that I had been meaning to catch. I pretty much was like, like sitting on my ass (laughs) <laughs> hey you uh, deserve it you deserve uh, it I love. it's it's an escape and i you know it is it is my kind of like i love watching film yeah 
Yeah, I think my guilty pleasure is like uh, school is a meet and greets. <laughs> oh, really? yeah, I, I let loose, you know, like I find it was funny because like one attendee last year said to me like, Bobby, you drink a lot. You know, I'm like, what? No, I don't. I, I barely ever. Oh, it's because you only see me at these Yeah, events. yeah, Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, last question. How about we just do one last question? This one is from Noah. I think this is my buddy Noah from uh, Israel. So Noah asks, what unexpected challenges did you overcome starting your own studio? Yeah, that's a really big question. Uh, I think that in the beginning, um, when Dyson and I started the studio, we were really idealists, naive idealists. And I'd like to say that the idealism hasn't gone away, but the naivete has become more apparent, like where we were naive. Um, and I think that any business is really, you know, the most important aspect of any business is, are the people are, you know, that's the real value of a company are, are the people. And, Um, I feel like that's been the surprising, most difficult part uh, are the people, the relationships. Dice and I started this out as kind of two really good friends who shared a lot of common vision over what they wanted to see in the industry, as well as what they wanted to see, the change they wanted to make within our own lives. Uh, our families were in very similar places. So, you know, we were both peers and friends um, and not to say we're not anymore, but It's very much like a marriage, you know, like we have been through things now that I feel like has changed us, uh, changed our relationship. Um, so I feel like the, one of the most surprising things is that I always counted on our relationship to be rock solid. That is the foundation of, of my relationship with everyone here at Tonko House. But I think like one of the most surprising things to me is that there are so many things that challenge that bedrock of this company. And Ultimately, the biggest challenge is actually both my and his ego. This whole company, in a way, is put into question for myself who I am and who I've, the path I've chosen. Um, and, you know, every time the company is incapable of doing something that we aspire to do, you know, it's really hard not to take that on myself. It's really hard not to be like, well, yeah, certain things failed, but also I think I failed here. And I think that's been the most difficult thing is that it's, it's every day of this has been about holding a mirror up and being okay with my own shortcomings and, but also learning to acknowledge where I am strong and what I am good at and letting and surrounding myself by, with people that are great and better at things than I am and being okay with that. And I think that's like something that you hear a lot, but actually doing it and acknowledging, like being able to tell people like, man, I really... I really suck at this. Like, I'm really not good at these things. And, and then also being able to lean on Dice and say like, hey man, you've got to be, one of the most difficult things has been like, hey Dice, you've really got to give me feedback. Like you really have to tell me where I suck, but don't forget to tell me where I'm good too and remind me that I'm good at things too. And I think it's that sort of like support system that truthfully for five years and you know, again, another seven, six years working together back at Pixar, That's been the most difficult thing is learning to grow together and always propping each other up, supporting each other. Um, and it goes the same with all my relationships at the studio is that, you know, the most difficult thing has really been the people.
Um, there's people that I love here and, but that t- sometimes how you see people and that friendship also gets in the way of running a business. And yeah. that's really the hard part, you know, is like running a business and friendship, you really, and building a family, you know, at the end of it, it's my ego and my kind of inability or ability to either support people to be the people that they want to be and who I want them to be or acknowledging that that's not our shared dream and being able to do what's best um, for the bigger picture ultimately, which, you know, fortunately I haven't had to do a ton of, but I feel like uh, that's ultimately the hardest thing to me. And that's right now. You might ask me by the time Lightbox happens, I might have something different to say about it. But um, those are the current things that I feel like are most difficult is really the people. And that's the best part of it too. Definitely. Definitely. I couldn't have said it better. And especially when you, for me anyways, the thing I didn't really expect was the challenge of working with friends that where it doesn't work out. Yeah. That really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And to lose friends, you know, hopefully that never happens to anybody because of the business. It's like that really, really sucks. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, one other one for me, I don't know about you, was just dealing with the whole entire concept of it's not about uh, do on to others what you would like to be done to yourself, but like do on to others what you think that they would like to because yeah. not everybody likes jelly sandwiches. You might like, you know what I mean? Like you got to think about what they like. Yeah. And that was like, it's a super simple concept, but it's hard to really do it well sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, as much as I think, you know, I'd like to think that we have a vision, the clarity of that vision and how clear that vision is, is all the difference for what the mark of success is for the company. And that's yeah, I got, one. Sorry, I got another good one, Robert, that I would love to know because especially like both of you guys, you guys kind of exude this energy where people just want to uh, make sure that they're at the top, uh, at the top of their game, giving you the most that they can give you. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that also means that people are going to be apprehensive to tell you the truth because they don't want you to feel like, oh, they're weak especially you looking at you guys going, oh, these guys are so disciplined, things like that. Like, you know what I mean? You you see where I'm getting at? Like you will get a different, you'll get a different kind of language from all the people that you're working with than how they talk amongst each other. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the solve for that, but I, 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 I fully, you know, to be honest, this is like what I've been experiencing over the last few months is that reality. And, Um, You know, I always kind of want to be in there and with everybody and like, let's talk, we're all a family, like, but, but the reality of things is, is, you know, I am, both of us are being seen differently than, than I think how we'd like to be seen, but also there's a reality to that, you know, there, there is a reality to how we see people and how they see us and, um, and I don't know how to solve that, you know, I, I think that's something that in truth, needs to structurally be inherent to the way that we work with each other and how we collaborate and how we set up relationships and how vulnerable we are, I think invites people to be vulnerable with us. 
And I think that's one thing that we're, you know, to your point, we don't like doing all the time is being vulnerable and showing that, hey, actually, we aren't great at this, mm. not the self-deprecating way, but more in a sincere and like reality of like uh, a survival way. Like, in other words, like we want to be the best that we can, not because uh, it's what we want, but it's actually because in order to achieve the vision, it's what we need to be. We actually all need to be the best versions of ourselves. But in me trying to be the best version of myself, the first step is actually to acknowledge that I'm not going to be great at these things. So we need other people to step up. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the most difficult conversations I had the other day, actually, and I hope I'm not being too transparent here with how things go here, but was having a conversation where, you know, I was truthfully having, trying to have an honest conversation with somebody about, you know, how things are going. And the only way that I found to actually have a real conversation was actually to open up and be like, give me feedback. Like you tell me like what I could be doing better. And then through that, you know, I was able to say, you know, they, they were able to say like, look, like you, you know, you're just, you're too nice all the time. And it's like, okay, but that's why I'm surrounding myself with these people is because these people are capable of holding me accountable to make those hard decisions. And, uh, and then suddenly it was like, we had common ground to talk about things because I was, you know, we were able to talk about my vulnerabilities we were able to talk about the company's vulnerabilities and also, you know, um, this individual's kind of contribution towards that. So, an understanding of that. So, I feel like, you know, it's, it's sorry for being, you know, kind of like not so clear here because I think like you're touching upon something that I, I myself, I feel like we're dealing with right now. And, um, and if you've gone through it and you have stories, that's really helpful for me. But yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Tons of those kind like, you know, oh, this person doesn't really feel like themselves today. Hey, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Uh, are you sure everything? Yeah, yeah, everything's great. Yeah. But what about this? What about that? No, that's good. Are you sure? Like you'd want to, you know, and like seven times. And it's like, yeah. well, um, yeah, it could be a little better. It could be a little better right. like this. You know, like, yeah, I would, I would try to like encourage that. Right. And it's like detective work. I'm like detective, yeah, detective Chu, detective right. Pikachu. <laughs> uh, yeah. I yeah. could literally chop it up with you for another two hours, I but know, I yeah. can't and you can't. So yeah. I want to thank you very much for your time, Robert. Can't wait to see you at Lightbox and yeah, uh, absolutely. for everybody out there, book three has come out go and get it these are not just wonderful stories they're masterpieces you guys yeah totally um and last thing is the schoolism class this whole entire time you've been watching the bonus lesson lesson 10 from the course go check out the real thing with explanations and everything and do the assignments super challenging loads of fun thank you again robert this has thank been thank you wonderful. Yeah. Can I have one thing? Sure. Um, uh, right now, you know, every year we do a traveling exhibition. Um, and this year is no different. Uh, this year we did a film festival in Tokyo. Oh, we yeah. also now have a traveling exhibition that just went to Korea for the first time. So this is in the Chongdam district of Korea in Seoul. 
Uh, it'll be running until the end of August. If anyone's out in Korea or heading out to Seoul, go stop by the exhibition. It's unlike any exhibition we've done before. There's a big component for family and kids to participate and draw on the walls um, as part of like our attempt. You know, we always thought about schoolism as we've always really enjoyed doing the schoolism course. But right now, what we've done is actually thought about, you know, if the schoolism course is really for adults and young artists and people who are, you know, kind of looking to break into the industry or learn how, um, how we see things and paint. We always thought it wouldn't be amazing to, to kind of bridge that program with starting at like the age of five or six. And so we kind of started a little program as part of this exhibition uh, with that in mind of like almost this little, for five and six year olds, a little mini sort of art training program um, in, in Korea. So if you're out there in Seoul, uh, go check it out. If you check out our Instagram or Facebook, you'll always see us posting about the information for Korea. Is so, there a hashtag that people can see all of like the posts um, and stuff where maybe there Zami Go is the company that is like hosting us over there. So Z-A-M-Y-G-O, if you do a hashtag or um, check out their social media, they've got all the information for all the upcoming workshops and uh, different talks and different activities that are going on. Um, but yeah, Bobby, you're always, you know, it's always fun to, like you said, we can always sit and chop it up for a while, but I always enjoy, I'm looking forward to Lightbox. Um, Dyson and I are really cooking up something special for uh, the first Lightbox and our first talk at Lightbox. So Tonko House Year 5, we're going to talk about and premiere some new things and um, it'll be really exciting. So thanks again, man. And uh, we'll talk soon. Right on.